This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Marvel Standom, and this is the first Hawkeye episode of Marvel Standom. We're going to be doing five weeks' worth of Hawkeye coverage, even though there's six episodes of Hawkeye. Why? Because we're dealing with the first two episodes today, folks. I am your host with the least, Mike Cicchini, welcoming you to a five-week celebration of the holidays in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and with me for all time and always... I have Denna Geek TV editors Katie Burt and Alec Bajalin, and Denna Geek News and Features editor Kirsten Howard. Let's dive into episodes one and two of Hawkeye. Kirsty, why don't you tell us how it all went down? In Marvel's Hawkeye episodes one and two, we catch up with Clint Barton post-Avengers Endgame as he struggles with both survivor's guilt over losing Natasha and his family commitments. While trying to give his kids the best Christmas ever, Clint's pulled into New York's criminal underworld when up-and-coming archer Kate Bishop nicks his old Ronin suit and catches the eye of the tracksuit mafia, who are now under the thumb of skilled death martial artist Echo. Clint is reluctant to team up with Kate, but she's over the moon about the prospect, having idolised Hawkeye since her dad died in the Battle of New York. But Kate's also got another big problem. Her mother, Eleanor, and her new fiancé, Jack, are involved in a high-profile murder. So it's a lot, and I think, this, uh, I think these two episodes do a really good job of setting up this corner of the MCU, but what did everybody else think? Yeah, I thought these first two episodes were a lot of fun. I think heading into the show, or at least when we got the first trailer, I was afraid it would be more of um, Clint's story than maybe I was interested in seeing, but this very much feels like Kate Bishop's story. Yeah, I mean, I love Haley Steinfeld. I think that was amazing casting, and I think she does so much to draw people into this, into the story. So I'm, I'm excited to see what happens next. It's nice to watch something that's, you know, obviously there's some serious things going on, but like the tone is very light here. I'm ready to watch holiday content after, you know, another year of <laughs> difficulty. So I'm like, yes, I let's just hang out in like a Christmas romanticized version of New York City with the tracksuit mafia. <laughs> I'm going to be honest with you guys. I, I love this. <laughs> it was so much fun. The vibes at Marvel Stained have been kind of off lately because none of us really liked Eternals. Some of the trailers that are coming out for Marvel projects down the line, I feel like have not really inspired us that much. But Hawkeye is just a delightful breath of fresh air. I have a hard time believing that it will ultimately be a better show than, say, like WandaVision and Loki, just because those shows are really innovative and creative and just very, very, very good at the end of the day. But I think the first two episodes of Hawkeye... I enjoyed, on a pure entertainment level, more than any other Marvel TV project thus far. Yeah, I love the um, the mysteries that the show has got going on, even though it's basically sort of family adventure action fun. 
Um, the Armand mystery is is great. Uh, I also love the the mystery of the watch, which has really captivated me. I don't know whether it will turn out to be completely inconsequential, but the fact that Echo wants this random watch from Avengers Compound and was willing to go to such great lengths to get it has got me intrigued. There's also the mystery of, um, you know, why Echo is heading up the tracksuit mafia here. And, you know, in the comics, I'm used to her being more of a heroine. So, yeah, I'm interested to see what happens next. I also love this, and I really did not expect to. I think the, the tone and the pacing is perfect. The humor lands, like almost every single joke really, really lands. Uh, I love the contrast between uh, Clint and Kate. It's very much their comics dynamic to some degree. Kate is still very much kind of in awe of Clint, whereas like obviously we're gonna see the, the bloom is gonna come off that rose pretty fast for her and with good reason, but they are such a fun dynamic together. Um, I loved it, I really did, and I didn't quite expect to. And in terms of just the overall vibe of the show, this is kind of more what I expected Falcon and the Winter Soldier to be like, you know? I expected Falcon and the Winter Soldier um, to have more kind of, you know, buddy comedy, 80s action movie vibes than what we actually got. Now, I'm not quite as hard on Falcon and Winter Soldier as some people here are, Alec. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> um, but, you know, it, there was definitely something missing from that. There was definitely that intangible MCU magic that wasn't quite there that I think is really, really present here in Hawkeye. WandaVision and Loki had that mystery box thing going on. You know, those shows could really lean into the idea of like, well, what's really happening here? Like, what is, you know, what are the big implications for the MCU? And these first two episodes, sure, there's mysteries to be solved and I'm looking forward to solving them, but like, who really cares? Like, you're just kind of here for the ride and, and you're here to watch, you know, Haley Steinfeld be amazing and, and, you know, Jeremy Renner just be like completely beaten down and depressed and it's working and I'm really into it. There are a lot of things that are different about the show from Falcon and the Winter Soldier, but, like, they are definitely the two shows so far that feel more, like, grounded in, like, um, I guess the real world. Um, but I also think that a major difference is the scope of the show feels a lot smaller, and I, I think that just works so well, and it's so grounded in a specific setting. Like, Falcon and the Winter Soldier was literally all over the place. Um, and just, I think, was too ambitious with the scope of the story it was trying to tell. Think of the, the stakes that they've presented here. Like, when's the last time we had a Marvel project with stakes that weren't the world's going to end? Mm -hmm. Like Eternals, world's going to end. Shang-Chi, world's going to end. Even Black Widow, which is like a self-contained, supposed to be like a kind of a self-contained James Bond small prequel movie, world's going to end. The stakes here are literally, Clinton has to be owned by Christmas. <laughs> That's it. And on Kate's side of things, the stakes for her is my mom's going to marry an asshole. It's just these very human stakes that we've not seen in a Marvel project in a long time. And it's just fun to get into. Even with all its differences from the Fraction Aja run, which I know that, Mike, you're a big fan of, and I was too when it came out. Um, this does feel like the closest adaptation of a Marvel Comics story yet by the MCU. 
How are you feeling about the transition so far, Mike? Uh, I love it. And, you know, I know that I'm often the person on this show being like, okay, like, you know, you should read the comics and this and that and the other thing. But that particular run of Hawkeye is so accessible and new reader friendly, like perhaps more than anything else. It came out in 2012, right at kind of the height of, you know, post-Avengers Marvel buzz. And it is, it feels deliberately designed so that people who only know Hawkeye from the movies can just come right in and, and pick up that first issue and just enjoy it. It's like, okay, this guy is the dude who has no powers and is just going to get his ass kicked all the time. And this is what he does when he's not being an Avenger. Uh, it is probably one of the top three books that I would recommend to people who are not familiar with comics, who just love these characters and concepts from movies and TV. This is one of the first things I would give them. The broad strokes of it, the flavor of it, you know, uh, a post-Avengers Clint Barton who's just beat up and tired and just wants to live his life. And Kate Bishop, who is, you know, just, you know, relatively new to being a superhero and wanting to spend time with, with her hero who she never has anything nice to say about. Uh, and just the pure hilarity of the tracksuit mafia who start off as just kind of like a sight gag in this comic and then end up showing up all the way through the end of the run. And it's so good. To see all of that on screen is just awesome. As a comics fan, I'm thrilled. As an MCU fan, I'm thrilled. I really uh, am kind of knocked out by Hawkeye. I mean, as someone who's not read that Hawkeye run, um, I can't speak to it. But I feel like so often uh, when we're doing these episodes... Mike Rakishton will mention that, like, you know, this movie's covering a run of the comics that was not great. I'd be interested in hearing the success rates or, like, what, which comic adaptations the MCU has tackled that were well-received as comics versus weren't well-received as comics and what the ratio is. I would imagine that the classics have ended up adapting better than the, um, the second chancers. I think we could do a whole episode on that. Folks, do you want to see us do an episode of how Marvel has adopted classic comic book runs for the screen? Let us know. Hit us up on Twitter at Marvel Standom or Marvel Standom at denageek.com. I would recommend everybody read that, uh, that particular Hawkeye run. I really do. Um, but maybe wait until you've finished watching the episodes now because I don't want anybody's kind of... I don't want people to be sitting here being like, okay, I wonder if this is going to happen or when is this going to happen? You know, that's my job. When these projects are announced, the, the details that I tend to pay the most attention to um, are who is, especially who's show running and who is directing. Um, and going into this, um, I think the choices that Marvel made were really smart and also made me excited about um, what was to come. Marvel also, it seems like with their Disney Plus TV shows, are, are really investing in relatively inexperienced creators, um, I think, who have proven themselves in the with the level of responsibility they've gotten prior, but haven't really had a chance to do something as, as high profile as Disney Plus series. So for Hawkeye, Jonathan Igla, I don't know if that's how you pronounce his last name, but he's the showrunner, and he's never, or whatever the Disney Plus equivalent of a showrunner is, um, head writer. He's never been a showrunner before, um, but he's worked on some really exciting projects that 
I think are some of the best TV shows like in recent years, including Pitch and Sorry for Your Loss, starring Elizabeth Olsen. I'm also interested on the directorial side, how they often hire directors who have histories in comedy for things that aren't, you wouldn't necessarily think of as straight comedy. So um, Reese Thomas directs the first two episodes and they previously have done like SNL shorts and then also documentary now, which... You know, you would not necessarily think like, oh, that person should, would be the perfect fit for for a show like this. But I think like Marvel sees that kind of potential in people, even starting as far back as, you know, the Russo brothers who came from like Arrested Development. It's And Kate Heron previously had done a lot more like comedy, things like um, Sex Education, which is a bit of a dramedy, but... Um, Bert and Birdie are the other, um, it's the directorial duo that is going to be directing the rest of the other half of the Hawkeye episodes. And yeah, they've, they've previously worked on The Great, um, which is very comedic. And I'm curious to hear what you all think about the direction of these first two episodes. I will say that there is a certain breeziness to this, uh, you know, to the pacing, to the direction that was lacking in all of the Marvel shows. And like in, in a lot of cases that was by design. I mean, like WandaVision was deliberately directed in a very particular way because they were going for a very specific uh, approach from episode to episode. You know, Loki is not the kind of thing that is gonna be done with the same kind of pacing and staging and directorial approach that we see in a show set in New York at Christmas time. Uh, again, I think the fairest comparison here is Falcon and the Winter Soldier, which felt, you know, occasionally felt kind of awkwardly edited. And, and there were times, particularly later in the show's run, where I wondered if we had been, if we had been missing stuff, you know? So um, I think in comparison to that, Hawkeye is much more consistent so far. Uh, the, the way I've been describing this to people is it's kind of like an 80s action movie. It really feels more like, like the, the first act of a late a late 80s action flick than it does episodes of a TV series. And I think that was, I think that was intentional. Um, so I guess I have a philosophical point to make about Mar Hawkeye and Marvel at large. For like, if you look at the, the movie landscape currently, there are not a lot of, I guess, what you would normally call middle-class movies. Like, 80s action movies were middle-class in the sense that, like, they didn't have a $200 million budget, nor do they have, like, a $5 million budget. They had like I don't know about thirty to fifty million, um, and the, the the encroachment of superheroes in our culture has kind of like pushed those middle class movies out. Like we only really have the big blockbusters or the relatively inexpensive indies. Um, Hawkeye, I think one of the reasons I like it so much is it feels like maybe one of the first, maybe the first Marvel project where I feel like Marvel's trying to put their foot back into that middle class of action movies. Like something mid-budget, it doesn't it isn't just like wall-to-wall -wall CGI, isn't world-ending consequences, is just kind of like a Daredevil style street level um, 80s action movie. And I like it for that reason. As much as this is a Clint Barton, you know, die-hard movie TV series and a self-contained story that introduces Kate Bishop, it also introduces another big MCU character in Echo at the end of the second episode. How aware are you guys of Echo? Watching that was very much a specific experience. 
I think happens to people who are MCU fans and who are not comic book fans uh, or readers, where you can tell that something is happening that comic book readers will be like, oh my god, or like at least understand what's happening. It's like it's awarded a, a prominence in the structure of the episode that feels important, but you don't understand what that importance is, which I'm fine with, but I definitely had to Google after watching that episode to figure out who that was. I had no idea that was. I thought it was mm. going to be Yelena. I mean, that maybe was just primed by tracked, like Eastern European tracksuit mafia. Echo's got big connections to Daredevil, to Kingpin, to Moon Knight, and it feels like the greatest hint yet outside of Spider-Man No Way Home leaks that the Daredevil Netflix universe is coming to the MCU now. Echo's origin in the comics is tied intrinsically to the Kingpin, you know, to Wilson Fisk. Her father, who who will appear on this show, uh, you know, worked for the Kingpin and was, and was killed by him. So, um, even though there has been no official confirmation that Vincent D'Onofrio is going to show up as Wilson Fisk on this show, and, you know, even less official confirmation that Charlie Cox is going to return as Matt Murdock, I would bet money that we're going to see one or both of them, uh, even if it's just in a cameo or a post-credit scene before this, before this series finishes. Coming off of Eternals, it is cool to see, um, like, deaf characters and deaf culture represented in the MCU, like, so casually. Um, and, I mean, you see that pr- presumably with Echo, but you also see it with Clint and his hearing aid. Um, so that that's kind of an interesting part of the MCU's development that I think has meant a lot to a lot of people. You know, in the comics, Clint's hearing loss has alternately been like kind of like very story based. You know what I mean? Like 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 there'll there'll be a particular event that triggers it. Whereas I like the fact that here, it really is just one more consequence of somebody who's lived the life that he lives, you know? I mean, I say this as somebody, you know, who suffers from constant ringing in the ears after, you know, spending my 20s in, uh, you know, at, at rock and roll shows and, and in clubs, you know? You're, you're, eventually gonna, you're eventually gonna deal with the consequences of that. And with Clint, it's, uh, you know, I, I, I love the way he kind of shrugs it off when Kate asks him about it. Um, it's it's a nice piece of character building that doesn't slow the story down. What did everybody think of Rogers the musical? It seems like they invested. I feel like they put a lot of effort into it. I was like very impressed. I also was like Clint, why are you here? Like, really, you wanted to go to this? Like, obviously you didn't. I don't know. I I don't actually need backstory as to how that came about. Um, like how that decision was made as a family. But yeah, I was impressed with. You, they, they, how complete and real that that musical felt, or at least the section of it we saw. I love Rogers the musical. What a brilliant story, like world building decision. Um, even since I saw the trailer, I was so excited for. I, I just love how the MCU builds out its own kind of lived in universe. And I, the other thing I like in Rogers the musical is that Ant Man's in it, and it kind that kind of speaks <laughs> to like pop culture's poor memory. <laughs> because, like, uh, you just assume that, like, Ant-Man would play such a big role in the Thanos fight that I think most people, the, the, the layman on the street, just naturally assumes, like, oh, yeah, Ant-Man's always been an Avenger. He was in New York. Why not? 
I like those little inaccuracies and cultural misremembrances. Uh, Rogers a musical, two big thumbs up. I'm surprised kind of that Marvel or Disney hasn't made a, an MCU musical yet in real life. Also, I was wondering, as someone who didn't see the cursed Spider-Man musical production, um, if there was any references to it in, in that. Um, maybe not. That would probably, it's pretty sensitive ground. Yeah, I think only in how awful musicals are like <laughs> <laughs> it does feel like marvel is taking like a subtle pot shot at its own cultural dominance here with rogers um and that is just like unheard of you know this is this is the most valuable thing in the disney ip library and we have never seen marvel make fun of itself but there is something here about just the overwhelming cultural dominance of superheroes in the real world right now. And now Rogers the Musical is probably, I would imagine, in the MCU, the hottest ticket in town, like the equivalent of Hamilton. Where I don't know. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, you just have to look at the reviews on the billboards outside that theater. You I know? mean, it's yeah, like, but they'll find... Every way. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, the PR department will find any little snippets to put. Yeah, like, you know how marketing works. <laughs> also, quality of a musical does not necessarily translate to its popularity or not. So it could be the hottest ticket in town. Yeah. This is the um, the second of three huge in-world Captain America moments. We had the uh, Captain America exhibit in the Smithsonian Museum in Falcon Winter Soldier. And we just saw in the recent Spider-Man No Way Home trailer that uh, the Statue of Liberty is actually holding uh, Captain America's mm -hmm. shield. So specifically, I think uh, the references to Captain America are intriguing. What does everybody think about Tony Dalton as uh, Jacques <laughs> Duquesne? I mean, I love him. <laughs> I love his mustache. <laughs> um, yeah, I just, I just think the casting in this as with so many MCU um, properties, is is amazing. Yeah, he made me laugh. Even when maybe he wasn't supposed to, but I think it was probably... I don't... That's kind of a weird thing to say. I think he... It was intentional in it, but it is a, a nuance of performance that I think most actors would not be able to pull off. Because he also has an antagonistic presence yeah. in, in some ways. Emotionally, especially for Kate. I love Tony Dalton. He's, I mean, he's one of the best villains ever in the Breaking Bad universe, which is no small feat. And he's excellent in this. He, the, the mustache does go a long way um, in establishing him as mom's <laughs> shitty boyfriend. The other thing I like about him, the character of Jack, is that he's, you know, very clearly sword-centric, and our heroine is bow and arrow-centric, which is also, like, that's another very 80s action movie thing. <laughs> like... If you have a character with strong punches, they got to fight somebody with strong kicks. <laughs> it's just like, it's almost like a philosophical uh, debate between what's cooler, swords or arrows. And I really enjoy it on that level. There's more to him than meets the eye, as everybody can tell. I don't want to talk about it in detail yet because I would like people to kind of discover that as they, as they watch the episodes. But there will be a time when we can kind of uh, dig into uh, Jacques, or Jack, as uh, as Kate likes to call him, uh, we'll be able to dig into his story a little bit more in future episodes, I'm sure. But I think there's uh, 
I think there's a lot of fun stuff that they're going to do with him. And Tony Dalton is, is amazing. I mean, anybody who's watched Better Call Saul knows how he just lights up the screen. So it's a nice dose of bad guy charisma that I think we has kind of been lacking lately. So, uh, you know, because there really wasn't that kind of... Uh, there wasn't that kind of villain in Black Widow. You know, there was, you know, no villain at all in Eternals, you know? So it's it's nice to see somebody like this where we can kind of you know, try and figure out their motives and, and maybe uh, enjoy their presence despite ourselves. Mike, I got to tell you, one of the most heartbreaking moments of my life is when I told you that I, that I told you I watched the first two episodes of Hawkeye and you hadn't yet. And you asked me how much lucky the pizza dog there was. And I had to look you in the eye and I had to tell you that the answer was not a lot. <laughs> it's true. Um, but having just reread the comics... Pizza Dog, while a constant kind of spiritual presence in the comics, uh, you know, does not get a lot of uh, page time there as well. So I think that's, I think that's kind of important. You know, it's like that old Simpsons joke about Poochie. You know, when Poochie's not on screen, everybody should be looking around asking, "Where's Poochie?" Well, that's me with Pizza Dog. Whenever, whenever Lucky is not on screen. Um, and, sorry, they have not named the dog Lucky uh, in the show yet, but in the comics. Uh, that is that is what Clint ends up christening Pizza Dog, uh, because Pizza Dog is anything but. Yeah, like whenever Pizza Dog's not on screen, I'm kind of looking around going, where's Pizza Dog? But that's just me. Uh, I love this dog. This is one of the great canines in modern fiction. Uh, perfectly cast with a, uh, a female golden retriever named Jolt. And I think she just brings, like, a lovely screen presence and, uh, you know, Jolt's going to be a star. There is a brilliant Eisner-winning issue of the comic as well that is told entirely from Lucky's point of view. And there's no dialogue other than the occasional word that Pizza Dog actually understands. Like, that's the only thing that is, like, written in English in the entire comic. And it is just a total masterpiece. And after seeing what was done with, uh, with an almost completely dialogue-free episode of Only Murders in the Building this year, I would love to see something similar done with, uh, with Pizza Dog in this show. I, will, uh, I anxiously await the Pizza Dog spinoff. So we've seen how these Disney Plus shows have been kind of teasing out uh, potential, like a potential next generation of Marvel heroes. You know, uh, in each of them... We've had members of a team known as the Young Avengers introduced in various capacities. Like most of them have been pretty small. They've been glorified cameos for the most part, but not Kate Bishop. And I think that speaks to not just the star power of Haley Steinfeld, but the importance of Kate Bishop going forward. Uh, Clint and Kate have been sharing the Hawkeye mantle in the comics for about a decade now, but it's kind of done in a way where it's like whichever Hawkeye you want to follow, that's your Hawkeye. Whereas with this show, I do feel like they're setting this up to be Clint Barton's last ride. You know, I feel like, you know, maybe they'll bring Jeremy Renner back for a cameo from time to time in the future. But these two episodes make it feel pretty definitively that... Kate Bishop is going to be the one and only Hawkeye of the MCU by the conclusion of these six episodes. And I'm totally on board with that because she is awesome. This is such a perfect piece of casting. 
Um, again, go back to those those Hawkeye comics that I keep bringing up here. But also, whenever she's you know been a part of the Young Avengers and she's had a couple of solo series of her own, this is one of the most perfect translations of a comic book character to live action that I've ever seen. Like, this is just perfect casting. My only personal thing is that I hope this doesn't get in the way of Haley Steinfeld maybe being the greatest Lois Lane of all time in a future Superman project. But, like, um, I think we're going to see Kate Bishop going back and forth between the TV and the movie side of the MCU probably pretty quickly because because she is just incredible in this. In conclusion, after everyone watches Hawkeye, they should go and watch Dickinson on Apple Plus TV. Someone made a cut of Steinfeld where they just do Seinfeld episodes with Haley Steinfeld's face mm. pasted over Jerry's. Oh my god. I need to see that. I mean, they probably haven't because it's a stupid idea, but I'm just wondering. <laughs> Wait, did you say that exists? No. I'm just oh, wondering. I was like, I said, it... somebody. Oh. oh. <laughs> it doesn't exist what an yet. enormous undertaking for such little reward. My underseen Haley Steinfeld gem is Bumblebee, the only mm. good Transformers movie. I thought you were going to be like, it's Pitch Perfect 3. <laughs> <laughs> No, she's like a real movie star. I feel like she's just going to have a long career of being a wonderful performer that draws people in. And that is it for another episode of Marvel Standom, folks. Keep coming back every Wednesday. We will be covering every episode of Hawkeye as they drop, giving you a weekly dose of MCU-themed holiday cheer. Make sure you smash that follow button on YouTube, please. And if you're tired of seeing my face... You can listen to us on Spotify, too. We're, we're all over the place now. Make sure you are following us on Twitter, at Marvel Standom. Make sure you are checking out our web home of Den of Geek. Go straight to denofgeek.com slash Marvel for all of our Hawkeye and MCU coverage. And we'll see you next week and every Wednesday after that. Happy holidays, folks. Stay warm. I'm always in traffic with the... Lane expert, you know this type of person, constantly re-evaluating their lane choice. Never quite sure, is this the best lane for me, for my life? But always a little bit ahead of you. Could I get in over there? Could I get ahead of you? Could I get in there? Yeah, come on over here, pal. We're zooming over here.